For December 3rd, 2012, it's the Overthinking It Podcast, episode 231. They did go hungry again. Welcome to the Overthinking It Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This week, Abraham Lincoln's Lincoln. No, Steven Spielberg's <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis. No, Daniel Day-Lewis's Spielberg. No, uh, the film. America's Lincoln, Matt. <laughs> America's Lincoln. F yeah. Coming to save the MF and Day. Yeah. Uh, I'm your host, Matthew Rather. Here is the panel. But before we begin, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you this week by us, the podcasters at Overthinking It, who invite you for all your holiday needs, all your holiday shopping, the many things that you need to buy in this, this most acquisitive of seasons, to... Uh, to when you buy them online, which I know you do, from Amazon, because really, where else is there? Like ThinkGeek or something, but, you know, really Amazon. Uh, to click through the affiliate link on Overthinking It. Um, believe it or not, this helps us, gives us uh, a, a significant chunk of change that helps us run the site for a good portion of the year. Uh, far more than the uh, four weeks we spend uh, flogging. This thing from our our, uh, affiliate link to our mentions on the podcast to our Black Friday post. So last week we highlighted Mark and his pick of the AeroPress. This week, Pete Fenzel, uh, you... um you picked the Wii U as your Amazon pick in our uh, Overthinking It Black Friday gift guide. That was an ambitious choice, my friend. Uh, what do you think your chances are of getting anyone to buy a Wii U through the link on overthinkingit.com? Look, um, uh, we, don't, we don't recommend that people buy Wii U's because there's sort of an outcome of relative pleasure or displeasure that's associated with buying Wii U's. We recommend people buy Wii U's because of a little thing called loyalty. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and what is, it? What is it? Ours is not the, tr- the triumph, but the struggle, right? Ours is not the... Uh, um, basically, I felt like the good that was accomplished by recommending the Wii U in terms of the, the way that it sort of heals the Nintendo loyalist soul was a greater good than the relative likelihood that it would actually buy it. Uh, it's sort of a poetical act. It's an act of defiance. So, so it was sort of in the spirit of Alfred Lord Tennyson's Ulysses, right? The, the, Nintendo, the, Nintendo, the Nintendo console purchaser who goes on what, to strive, to seek, to find. And to not, uh, yeah. and, and not to put the game on pause when he goes to the bathroom because he could just take the little controller with him and he can go to the bathroom <laughs> while he's playing, which is the best thing ever. Uh, I think the Wii U is actually kind of a remarkable machine. I really want to get one at some point. Uh, I intend to get one when I can scrape some money together uh, to purchase it for myself. Uh, but this is a season of giving, and if you know somebody that this would matter a lot to, uh, and more importantly, if you knew you were going to buy one anyway... <laughs> Um, I feel like uh, it's a communal experience, right? It's something that we can all share. Uh, Something that perhaps some of the gaming community will never quite understand. Well, we understand you. We get you. If you hear that calling, if you hear Miyamoto calling you in the night, uh, like Isaiah, his lips touched by the coals, uh, then know that you are not alone uh, and that we are also there for you. So there you are. Thanks very much. So uh, thank you, Pete, and and thank you if you uh, click through and you know 
give us our couple percent, couple points of uh, of affiliate uh, commercial love. That's what we like, and that uh, helps us to run the site. Anyway, so end of the sponsor message. On to Lincoln, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, <laughs> written by Tony Kushner as a gay fantasia on national themes. No, that's not true at all. That's, <laughs> that's Angels in America, Tony Kushner's. Uh, I think we should talk were- about that. I have a theory, by the way, about the connection between gay rights and this, but it's probably obvious now that I said it, but we should bookmark that. I just want to. I'm just retitling uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure to Abraham Lincoln Millennium Approaches. So, (laughs) little Tony Kushner humor. Abraham Lincoln, Perestroika. So, in honor of that, let's um, take one of the florid lines from Lincoln and deconstruct it. Uh, Panel, your task this week, your question is fill in the blanks in this sentence. I am the blank of blank. Clothed in immense blank. Everyone take a drink of whatever you have in your hand because Peter Fenzel is neither, uh, is not first in the alphabet. Uh, it is Matthew Belinke. Uh, while I drink, Matt, I'm going to drink the entire time that you are answering. So, so uh, off you go. Okay, here's the deal. There's a time in your life when you are... When you're when you're a teenager, when you're like a young teenager, uh, fifteen in this case, when you have no taste and and you love things that are bad because you don't know any better. And my theory is that you get to continue doing these things throughout your life with no sense of guilt because they're they're grandfathered in. Um, so that that's for instance why I love uh, Meatloaf, all the Meatloaf albums. <laughs> I'm not just Bad Out of Hell and Bad Out of Hell Two, but uh, what, Bad Out of Hell Welcome Three, to the Neighborhood. What's that? Bad Out of Hell 3 as well? I'm actually not completely down with Bad Out of Hell 3. <laughs> it, Wait, you, you, really feel like it, just... you feel like it falls off from the, the <laughs> high standard that Bad Out of Hell... That's Out of Hell 1 and 2 set? <laughs> it's, it's sort of the, you know, to, to because I, I believe this is in fact based on the work of Dante. Paradiso is an excellent poem, but it's not as good as Purgatorio <laughs> in Inferno. Yeah, and is, yeah, is far inferior to Inferno. <laughs> Right, yeah, and so it's like about three. I mean, it's still a better epic poem than than most other rock albums, but it's not. No, but 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 what I'm I'm slowly getting to the answer. Um, I love the Sylvester Stallone Judge Dredd movie. I said it. I'm, I'm going on record as being a a, a if, if that's on TV, I'm canceling all my plans because I need to see it. And so my sentence is: I am the law of Mega City One. Clothed in immense shoulder pads. <laughs> and if you have not seen the Sylvester Stallone Dread, I feel like it gets a bad rap. It's actually uh, it's a pretty fun movie. It's got, I mean, certainly they, they throw a lot of money at the problem and they get a lot of interesting production design um, in return. Um, I do have to say, I don't understand the point at which it turns that Sylvester Stallone and Armand DeSante are actually identical twins with, with completely identical DNA. That's a crucial plot point. Um, and they don't really look very much alike at all. Um, but it's the future. Who knows how DNA works in the future? Well, they just figured out nature and versus nurture by then. <laughs> I suppose. So. <laughs> all right. Anyway, next, oh, and, and oh, yeah. Max von Sydow in an interesting uh, punching way above his uh, – way, way below his weight, I guess, in this case. Uh, the the great Max von Sydow is like a fun guy because he's like 
a lot of artsy films and like you know he's, he's earned like eternal street cred for the playing chess against death um but he also visited like a lot of like fun b-type movies as like you're sort of like sinister old uh you know german guy um and that's you know so whatever he's he's elevates whatever he's in one of those guys excellent <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Um, all right, so now drink again because you like to drink. Uh, because Peter Fenzel is is next. I am the biggest of losers, clothed in immense pants. <laughs> <laughs> One of the cool things about Lincoln is we got to see Lincoln in a bunch of private conversations where he was able to exert his authority over someone in sort of a performative way, such as sitting on the table higher than them, right? Or kind of putting on his giant beaver skin uh, top hat, stovepipe hat, right? And I like to think that uh, the biggest loser, in fact, and it has also has like each player has like a shadowy cabal of people that are trying to exert influence on each other and that uh, whenever the biggest loser wants to really pull the trump card he or she like stands up and just extends the waist of those pants out like like 10 or 12 inches from the front of his stomach or her stomach and it's, and it's just sort of like unspoken like look what i've accomplished mm. like you think you could stop like stand in my way i'm the biggest of of losers all right it's like uh there's a power to those crazy large pants um i wonder whether it wouldn't be a good thing a good feeling just to buy a pair of pants that are like maybe 15 inches too big for you just so that you can like stand there and pull them out for people and like look at them and they really look at them and they really understand what power feels like Um, i've found that when i pull my pants open and show people i get in trouble well, you can't make an omelet without but it, it does feel getting arrested right. for interesting exposure. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not saying pull your pants down. I'm saying to pull the front of the pants out. I guess somebody who's above you could see your testicles, so that would be a problem. So maybe you only want to make it – you want to stand on a platform that's above them so that there's no exposure. I mean there's a lot of kinks to work out. I'm not, I'm not here to work out the specific logistics of the <laughs> pants-pulling scenario. I just want to identify the underlying potential for uh, – political theatrics which i feel like is is worth doing because there god knows there's not enough political theatrics in our lives <laughs> mark lee <laughs> that was, yeah, <laughs> daniel day lewis's next acting role would be that of john williams and he will have this line to say i am the composer of music for this film Clothed in immense parts for French horns and clarinets <laughs> to telegraph plaintive moments. <laughs> right. I don't know if anybody else really like has latched on to this trope in in film music. Well, Mr. Jordan Stokes are here to talk about this, but you know the thing, which you know it just tells you this is an important tender moment where someone is saying something important. Listen up. I like that a lot. And that, a lot, that happened a lot in this movie, and I was just eating it up. It's like, yeah, tell it to me. Ooh, give me those clarinets. Give John me those French horns. Yeah, John, John Williams, tell me how to feel. It's the, the clarinets of contemplation. <laughs> yeah. yeah in, in, the, uh, in the current improv show that Sheely and, and uh, Cognac are in with me, we have a soundtrack that has a track of oboes of trepidation. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Matt, you have a French horn around there somewhere. Can't you play it for us so that we feel important when we say things on the podcast? <laughs> I, I don't think either you or like people who live within blocks of me really want that. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, I have a funny story about French horns. I'm not, it's only tangentially related to the to the podcast, though. But um, uh, 
friend of friend of the show, uh, film and television composer Bear McCreary, uh, once invited me when he was scoring Human Target to a uh, scoring session for Human Target. So I saw all the music um, for Human Target uh, be recorded for one episode, um, and uh, the orchestra was so big that it did not fit in the studio. So they clothed they they clothed them in immense power. No, they. <laughs> They um, split the orchestra into horns and winds and percussion and then strings and recorded them separately. And uh, the reason this was true was that Bear had hired uh, like a dozen French horns to like really (laughs) capture the majesty of – and it's an incredible orchestral score. It's actually really great work, I think. Pity about the show. But but the soundtrack was (laughs) was phenomenal Um, and like rousing and a really good theme. Anyway, so every um, French horn player in Los Angeles was employed <laughs> in this one uh, in this one orchestra, and uh, just because he had to, he did uh, one moment where they were all playing different notes. That was like an eight-note chord where all eight French horn players, or all ten, or however many there were, um, you know, had different different notes, and it was this enormous chromatic monstrosity. At uh, mm. it was, they were the French horns of uh, of chromatic monstrosity, <laughs> I suppose. Human Target, represented in Lincoln by Jackie Earl Haley, of course, uh, <laughs> who played the head of the Confederate uh, delegation, uh, and who also was in Human Target as that guy in Human Target. Which, if you have seen it, you know who he is, and he's the squirrely dude, the redheaded guy. And if you didn't see it, it's not worth explaining. So there you go. <laughs> Very similar characters, though. Yeah, that's true. That was interesting. I loved how that whole delegation was the like Monday Night on Fox circa 2010, where it was like the evil president from 24 and like the guy from Human Target are like trying to negotiate with Lincoln about like uh, all the bad things that they were going to do. I think Jack I think Bauer would have made it very think of him as, as Rorschach. But yeah, I'm, that's think, true. I'm glad that you continue to refer to him as guy from Human Target or, or <laughs> Freddy or the new Freddy Krueger right. or something. <laughs> the guy, the creepy guy from Little Children. Right, 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 right. You're going you mean the way guy- down the death chart of, of Jack Garhelly. <laughs> His name in human target was Gu- Guerrero, which is hilarious. That <laughs> 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 Guerrero. Like he's the playing for the Braves or something. It's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, Josh McNeil next in the alphabet. Well, so Pete sort of beat me to it. Mine was going to also be uh, immense pants, but I was going to go with I am the governor of New Jersey. Um, (laughs) But uh, so instead I'm going with uh, I am the Prince of Bel-Air, clothed in West Philadelphia. (laughs) (laughs) And that's all I'm going to sing at that song. (laughs) Oh, we can do the the rest. I mean, we can Bel-Air you. Um, Yeah, yeah. We could just turn this into a Bellerathon. That would be great. <laughs> I have a feeling that's coming back later in the podcast. <laughs> uh, I I am not Prince Hamlet of Denmark, clothed in the bottoms of my trousers rolled. <laughs> <laughs> what is that about? It doesn't doesn't quite fit. Um, yeah, uh, sorry. That's that's maybe a deep cut off the Elliot album there. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we saw. Uh, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I I am an attendant, oh, okay. one that will do to swell a progress, start a scene or two. Anyway, we saw Lincoln. All of us. We actually all saw the film. Is isn't that correct? That is correct. That's okay. Good. I was waiting for someone to to speak up and spoil my um 
to speak up and spoil my pronouncement. That's, uh, that's um, rare for us. And it's also rare. Another rare thing uh, is to have McNeil on the podcast. So, uh, Josh, I think like we're going to give you pride of place and start with you. And also, as, uh, as a student of American history, al- along with Mark, uh, you know, uh, a student of American history, but I believe you wrote a, uh, a great work of scholarship once on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, so what did you think? Uh, what were your general impressions of uh, Steven Spielberg's film, Lincoln? You know, now that you mention it, my thesis was on the speech that started the movie and the speech that ended the movie. Um, <laughs> it wasn't nearly as entertaining as the movie, though, so I, I'm sort of embarrassed by that. Uh, I thought, I mean, sort of both as a work of history and as a work of entertainment, it was fantastic. Um, expectations started very low. Um, your, sort of your, choosing- expe- your expectations. Um, yeah, and I mean, actually, like, once the movie had started, I thought the first sort of three minutes of sort of uh, having the Gettysburg Address quoted back to Lincoln by sort of uh, Denzel Washington's character from Glory was a little much. <laughs> right. Um, and then sort of the end, like, the little Americana drizzle, Americana drizzled on the end was, was also too much. But in general, like, this is a person that, that most Americans think of as, like, this godlike figure who... You know, what do we know of him? We know of him as the big marble bust in the temple of Jupiter that sits in, uh, uh, you know, that sits on the mall in Washington, D.C. He's been very much deified. And to s- this movie was about the nitty gritty. This movie was about this man did great things and he did them in the ways that we still do politics. Um, so just like as a celebration of of him and of the real him and not the deified him, I just thought it was fantastic. I had a great time with it. And sort of as someone, I, I work in the legislative world, so it was like, very rarely is the lobbyist like a hero in the movie. <laughs> yeah. So for once, I was kind of like, oh, yes, fantastic. <laughs> um, and immediately like Googled Spader's character and now he's my new hero. Oh, so, yeah. uh, is, is that, that character historical as well? Yeah, yeah. He goes on to like become a, a, a uh, I just blanked on the reconstruction um, politician in Tennessee and like continues to fight sort of the ongoing slavery that's happening down there as late as like the late sixties, early 1870s. Cool guy. Um, and in general, just, it was fun. It was like, it was, uh, I've heard it described as the West wing in frock coats and uh, with way more facial hair with way more. Well, yes, sadly. Um, I mean, how great would, the West Wing had been if Rob Lowe had had sort of like a big handlebar, but um, no, it, great throughout, exciting throughout. I mean, they did they made legislation fun. Like even though you know those of us who enjoyed history class knew how that vote was going to turn out, it was still dramatic. Um, and even though you know sort of not you know, um, turns out he's been dead the whole time. Sort of at the end, not to spoil it for anybody. Like you were still you were still moved by it. Um, and I think that's hard to do in a story that everybody knows as well as sort of the overarching story of the movie. Sure. Oh. Uh, and introducing like new characters like Thaddeus Stevens, who's like, you know, one of the great sort of now completely unknown figures of American history. They did a really fun job of that too. Tommy Lee Jones was, this was the best thing he's been in since like the fugitive probably. <laughs> I mean, he's in no country for old men, but he was pretty good in this too. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, let's go. Let's go to the other historian, Mark. I mean, what do you? What do you? Uh, what do you think? So I largely echo uh, Josh's feelings on the movie. It was a, 
I enjoyed it a lot. You know, both as uh, as a piece of entertainment as a, and as a piece of history. Um, I think what I I liked most or resonated the most to me about the movie. Um, and this goes into, into squarely political territory here and also sort of broadens the context, especially for uh, those in our audience who aren't as familiar with American history. Um, I, I like the movie the most because it just made really clear, plain and simple, what was at stake in the Civil War and uh, and the issue of slavery and its importance in that conflict um, because uh, of just decades upon decades of um, revisionist history or revisionism is kind of a, a loaded term. So, uh, decades and decades of, uh, of, of, uh, what's the way to sort of propaganda for lack of a better word from framing and reframing the narrative, I would say. Yeah. Of the, of the South, um, to make the civil war, this romanticized lost cause about States rights and, uh, and all these other things. Um, when, what it comes down to was this like just horrid, horrid American sin, original sin of slavery. And, uh, to, to, to bring this to the to the public for and to have us you know, sort of reconfront this horrible uh sin and and at least this first attempt at um at expurgating it from our national consciousness i think the movie deserves a lot of credit for that hmm. so i'm glad that you know that it's bringing that back into the into the discourse in some way i don't know i'm sure where how it's going to play out from here on um but i'm glad it's back did you I think, think it would oh go ahead I'm sorry. I, I agree completely, and thought that like oh, I should also add, like, Josh and I both grew up in the South, so we're, we're just let's like it's right. Just not in only our, are you the, the in it. yeah, you you're the historians, and you you guys are the Southerners, <clears throat> the the Alabamans or Alabama. Yeah, we grew up with the Confederate flags flying and people saying you know you know damn Yankees, uh, the South shall rise again, all that crap. There were five high schools in my town. One of them was Robert E. Lee. Um, Robert E. It's Lee, only wow. one, huh? Just <laughs> one. <laughs> You know, they tried. They, they tried to name the other ones that way, but um, it got confusing. My my dorm in college was named after John C. Calhoun, the famous Southern racist. Oh yeah, um, that's so never th- occurred th- to me until now, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, the I agree with Mark in that, like it's it's sort of brought the fact that this really was about slavery, and it really was about the way that like the races interacted. And I thought there's a um, sort of contrived but great scene between Lincoln and um, like one of the the servants at the White House, where you know they're trying to sort of think through what America looks like post slavery, and they really don't know. But that was really good too. But at the same time, it was what, what it was, was it? they had some strangely weird like kind of racist things happen. Um, you know, the concept of like the magical Negro, uh, like there were two or three of them in the movie. Um, they really didn't seem to have a whole lot of agency on their own. They were sort of there to comment on and like guide the white people. And that's something that also kind of serve as a, as a, like a beacon of, you know, like Mrs. Keckley, right? Like sitting up there next to Mary Todd Lincoln in the, uh, you know, in the gallery of the House of Representatives, right? Like serving as a uh, serving as like a shining, you know, a shining moral example and a, a, a sort of what, like a, a sort of arbiter of 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 morality for when you know any uh, when any representative needed to like look up, you know, and see uh, see morality, right? Like personified yeah. in front of him. Right. 
And also, yeah. I mean, she wasn't allowed the complexity that the Mary Todd Lincoln character was allowed for the death of her son, right? And she wasn't allowed the complexity with regards to her relationship with religion that you saw when Lincoln was talking about, you know, eternity and the whale or when he was talking about God in his speeches or any of the other discussions. She had to have the smiling strength that was absolute, right? And that sort of deep well of peace that comes from the exotic African continent or whatever the hell. You know, like, I don't know. I mean, it's it's fine. It probably would have been problematic to try to make the black characters into better characters uh, and, and less kind of like, um, you know, Buddhas presiding over, like, you know, these sort of trifling actions of white people. You know what I mean? Like, it would have been nice to have them sort of... Because so many of the characters that are so frequently lionized or demonized were in this movie portrayed a bit more naturalistically. Uh, and, you know, it, it just... Except that they left the black people where they're always portrayed in these movies, and they didn't get the same treatment and i understand that spielberg isn't really in the business of shattering our sensibilities and he, he kind of you know made a lot of safe choices while this was happening but it still was a bit disappointing oh yeah, and by the way a- i'm pretty sure it wasn't denzel washington's character from glory but more andre brower's character from glory uh, that was angry at the beginning of you're the right movie. you're absolutely yeah. right <laughs> but nobody remembers that so never mind <laughs> <laughs> um the the way that they handled that one, the I mean, one of the obvious sort of things that's left out of this is, um, uh, I'm sorry, uh, not Stephen Douglas, um, Frederick Douglas. Fred, Frederick Douglas, yeah, who was a friend of Lincoln. Like completely right? left out, and that I mean, there's a character that was involved in politics of this and could have, you know, could have demonstrated some human complexity and had a layer or two to him. Um, a, sort of an odd choice to leave him out and then sort of add in, you know. The cheerful glove bearing guy, um, which, by the way, a bit, a bit of meta casting. That guy also was in um, Tower Heist, and he played a doorman in Tower Heist. Uh, yeah, he's like, I'm sure he's in this movie. He's like, I've been here before. Why am I being typecast? Ah. But they are. I mean, they're famous people. Like Mrs. Keckley is like famous and is sort of enmeshed in the story of of Mary Todd Lincoln, her like lady's maid and like dressmaker or something, right? And the, uh, I, I mean, so I've been reading like articles in the, you know, progressive blogosphere who are never satisfied with anything. And, um, <laughs> right, it turns out, I mean, you're always. The nature of progress, Matt. Yeah, if you're so. satisfied, there's no progress. <laughs> Good point. You're always oppressing someone in the, uh, in the progressive blogosphere, uh, right, to the point where, where it makes you want to stop trying. Um, but anyway, like, they're, they're uh, Mrs. Keckley and that. Now I can't remember the name of the character, but the but Gloveman um, was, uh, you know, um, like they they were involved in the like the the big kind of political uh, mishigas that was going on in Black Washington D.C. Uh, right at the time because there was a there was I guess like a, a sort of very politicized and very active. Um, uh, black population free black population in in the capital right and so yeah so so kind of making them so quiet and making their sort of um their function mostly as the the um what the sort of beacons of morality or the kind of supports you know oh mrs lincoln's gonna be really mad at you if you don't wear your gloves right like as though that was his contribution you know to the to the uh i don't know political um effort the the political project of the times uh yeah it does sort of seem to rob these characters of of a lot of their complexity but but uh, like 
honestly, maybe it's not fair because that's that's not the project, right? The movie sets out on, and so right. holding it to that kind of standard might be uh, maybe a little procrustean on our part because. Um, you suggesting we're overthinking this, Matt? <laughs> How dare we? So while, I, while we're on the topic of the progressive blogosphere, things that the progressive blogosphere are complaining about in this movie and things that this movie was not trying to do, we should bring up the topic of uh, sort of like the, the, the legacy of the 13th Amendment and what happened afterwards and how basically the progressives are complaining that uh, this movie portrayed the radical Republicans in a, in a negative light. In reality, they were the ones who were trying to, um, you know, actually you know, improve uh, the rights of, uh, of, of black people in the South after the Civil War and that they're, you know, that um, they were trying to do the right thing and that, you know, when, when, when Reconstruction failed, like that's like set things back in such a huge way that uh, sort of the, the you know, ending of the victorious passage of the 13th Amendment, like uh, the, the glosses over all those the, the struggles to continue. People are complaining about that because like that yeah, is Stevens, yeah. I thought was the single the most laudable character in the whole movie. Yeah, people were complaining about, like, why is this moment of compromise so lauded, you know, with the French horns and strings and, and, and clarinets of, of poignancy um, when, like, you know, he was sort of, like, capitulating and, uh, and, and you know, not standing up for what he believed in. Well, he was being a politician. Yeah. <gasps> and, and not in not in a bad way, but I mean, I do think I think politics is the art of the possible, right? And that like it's all well and good to have this sort of Mister Smith to Washington fantasy that like all you do like, you say what you believe in, and like you just say it loudly to like everybody is just blown away by the death of your conviction. But reality, well, I'm going to sh- I'm going to stay gotta... right here and fight for this lost cause. Right, exactly. <laughs> but in reality, if you if you you know it, it's it's to to sort of thread that needle and to to give up. 49% of what you want to do in order to get 51% of what you want to do done. Yep. Yeah, That's I mean, how it works. It's, not a, it's not a coincidence that people today who probably don't care whether or not things practically get accomplished and are really, really angry about specific things that will never happen, perhaps don't appreciate the nuance of what's being communicated in this movie right it's like why won't they fix all of the problems and all of the poverty in the world and why is there still sadness and sickness and why is it that in this movie this guy who compromises prays so much and how come we can't let everyone out of prison and legalize everything i want legalized and fix everything i want to have fixed and why can't it happen right now google ron paul yeah, Google, Google German Ron Paul. Yeah, um, <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to belittle it, but I mean, I think that there's definitely analogy there. I mean, it's it's telling, right? It's like, well, perhaps because you identify with the characters who feel exactly like you, who are portrayed exactly like that in the movie. You know, it's not like this is a foreign concept, and it's not like the movie is making a really strong case that this is the right thing to do. I mean, I guess it is to an extent, but it's also saying that this is kind of the necessary thing and that there is a yeah. certain tragedy and a sense of loss associated with it. He has to approach it with a certain grace and there's a certain sadness, but it's also Spielberg, I guess, and he's not going to paint yeah. anything too dark, right? Um, think, like he just goes I mean, home and just the- vomits. He's just like, oh, my, all my hard work. Who am I? Oh, bro. Like- <laughs> it, is, it is interesting that like one of the, one of the things that the movie manages to do is make capitulations seem really noble and idealistic mm-hmm. and it sort of paints this like west wing view of like you know how amazing democracy in america could be out of a story which which basically is like kind of 
where Lincoln has to sort of like get down in the mud a little and sort of like basically bribe people and threaten people and like do what it takes. And it, and it creates this sort of idealism, not out of, you know, doing what's right and just convincing people through the death of your conditions, but, but through politics and all their horribleness. To think that he can do it by by proxy, right? The, to to think that he can do it through intermediaries and then realize that he has to step in. It actually reminds me of the uh, of the plot arc in the West Wing where um, uh, Santos can't get the teachers' unions, right? And then uh, and then you know Josh like brings the the rep- the delegate from New York who's the representative of the teachers' unions in, and it's like I- I'm not meeting with Santos, and it's like who said you're meeting with Santos? And you know Martin Sheen, he opens the door, and there's there's Martin Sheen there, you know, to say. Um, I, I appreciated the fact that in this film, uh, it was kind of a point that everyone kind of hated Lincoln speechifying, right? Like, and everyone was really tired of the, the kind of folksy storytelling, um, because it, it, uh, you know, because there is work to be done and we can't, or, or I want to sleep. Right. And like, I can't, I, I really don't want to sit up and listen to you, uh, like tell stories about, about this or that, um. Um, right. If you, I mean, the, but that was his genius, and I, I not everybody hated it. I mean, there were a couple of people, like the Secretary of Defense, and like the guy who was trying to sleep, certainly. But I mean, that was what won. That's you know, that's how he became president. That's how he became successful. If you ever get a chance, there's a great um, uh, audio book that's David Strathairn as Lincoln and Richard Dreyfus as Stephen Douglas doing just all of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and, like, half of it is Lincoln just telling those stories, you know, which is a tactic he borrows from, like, Jesus and a number of other pretty good politicians. <laughs> and then um, Bill Clinton borrowed from him, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it works, but, like, I mean, the, there's that one scene where he's in the war office, right? I mean, it's the war office at the middle of the Civil War, and, and he, he makes everybody take that break, and he tells that great story of Ethan Allen and the picture of George Washington in the outhouse, which is a fantastic story by itself. But like, what he's able to, to do in that room is just sort of politics at its best. Um, and the people in that room felt a whole lot better for it afterwards, even though they're sort of you know tense and haven't slept and it's awful. Like that seems to really have been his genius. And sort of like, I don't know. I always think of it. Uh, I think of him like Odysseus, right? I mean, just, that was that was his power was storytelling more than anything else. And even when he needs those votes and he's playing the dirty politics, he does it by telling those stories, and it's kind of amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it does raise the whole dirty politics thing. I mean, we mentioned how sort of compromise is, is, you know, we wish that they compromise less, but that's kind of portrayed as glorious. But like, you know, there are a lot of things in this movie that people will be really upset about, right? I mean, we sort of talked about the dirty politics and the buying of votes, but just to sort of take it head on, I mean, you know, these are things that happen today. You know, maybe not exactly the same way as they used to happen. Certainly the office of the Postmaster General isn't what it used to be in terms of patronage jobs and whatnot. Um, and, and, but, uh, but like these are things – and federal employment has changed a lot and all that other stuff. But there's still huge amounts of this kind of stuff happening. In fact, a lot of it is happening right now. I mean when you think about you know, the fiscal cliff negotiations, one of the funny things that I, – I mean I only, it's only funny because it's sad is you keep hearing it's like, well, why are they happening behind closed doors? Right? Why, why are they negotiating? Why can't this be an open 
negotiation where everybody finds out. And that's whenever someone wants something to totally fail. That's one of the things they say, right? They're like, why are there secret meetings about the health care bill? Why are there secret meetings about the fiscal cliff negotiations? Why don't they just record everything and tell it to all of yeah. us? Because this is a direct democracy. And it's like what you're saying when you're saying that is that you do actually don't want anything to be accomplished at all and you want to destroy the process, right? Because people are crazy. Um, and, but I mean, again, it's like, I don't know. The last president who really got a lot of things done was Nixon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After that, they sort of stopped. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think yeah, it's. I mean, it's, it's, it's it's kind of. I feel like it might be time to try to build a more adult sort of discourse around this, where you're not both brushing off the concerns of corruption, of course, but also not, you know, insisting on this panacea of direct democracy, which is a sham and is impractical and won't work and won't accomplish the things that people want it to accomplish. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to grind an axe there, but this idea that you know, if all the people got together, they could have ended slavery themselves, you know, by protesting as opposed to through the 13th amendment you know what i mean like it's just yeah, if only there were reddit in the 1860s yeah, exactly. that's exactly what i'm talking about you know exactly if only if only although the congress behaved a lot like reddit does which is kind of hilarious with them all well, like, hurting each other and stuff. oh yeah how much better would politics be if you could still just openly insult the opposition like c-span would have huge ratings if uh, they had, if yeah. yeah i mean you can't do you can't do it in england right yeah <laughs> <laughs> Which is why Americans watch prime minister's questions. Like, we don't actually know what's going on. We just like watching them yell at each other. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Um, is the repeat the thing, was, the thing I mean, you mentioned about... Oh, sorry, I just want to talk about politicians insulting each other. You, you have more... Oh, no, go right ahead. That's, we're on that topic. <laughs> the thing about it is that the, the, like, the eloquence in vituperation, right, is so... Um, is is what's so arresting about it i think right like I, I i have a feeling that like due to the like the low level of our discourse and the low level of our literary culture uh it would be it would come down to you know y- you're a poopoo head no you're a poopoo head no nancy pelosi you're a poopoo head no no, no John, matt give me an example of this remember when uh, someone in the uh, during the state of the union address yelled at the president you lie i mean that's exactly what we're talking about here Right. Well, one one might argue that you kill, that one might argue yeah. that some people yelling "you kill babies" and the other one saying "you hate women" is sort of the equivalent of that, right? Like yeah. we've boiled it down. It's, it's, to some, it's moved yeah. on to Fox News now, instead of actually on the floor of the House of Representatives. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's um, not nearly as erudite. It's all boiled down to impact, which is kind of sad because the reason we like it is because of the the beauty of the statements, which turn out to not actually serve much of a purpose after all. Uh, <laughs> in terms can, of can I ask impact. a question to, to the people who know a little bit more about history than I do? It, it seems the, the drama of this movie is, is based around the idea that at the end of the war, there was like a better than average chance that slavery would not be abolished, according to this movie. I'm not sure if I completely believe this, because to me, it's, you know, whether or not the Civil War was about slavery, you know, which is like the big, you know, is it, what was it really about? It seems like, you know, the idea that we could have fought the whole war and then the slavery thing would just have gone on with the Mason Dixon line after that was was crazy. That like of course if the North won the Civil War slavery would be abolished. But of course the movie makes it makes it seem that you know, the pressure to end the war was so great that people would have jumped at the chance to be like, Yeah, slavery's still fine. Let's just go back to the status quo. So I don't know if anybody knows well, yeah. how accurate yeah. that is. I mean, McClellan ran against Lincoln on that in 1864. It was basically like, but, but I'm going to make... But pretty handily, though, right? Well, he, but, like, 
nobody thought he would until Gettysburg. Like while the war was seeming was was sort of not so obviously going um, on the union in the union side, um, McClellan was a real contender for a while there. At the end, not so much, but um, he was a real threat when they started. And you know his his whole line was we're going to make peace with the South, um, and you know they were going to try and rebuild the Union peacefully. And part of that was saying we're staying out of this. Um, one thing Pete was saying earlier about like the 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 populist like people um, you know protesting in the streets and the power of that. Like if you if you hadn't had that, that was sort of the catalyst for this whole thing. It was that rabble like out there protesting slavery that got the South nervous. And sort of set up the whole, you know, Lincoln coming in and them seceding thing anyway. Like, if you don't have that, that's what creates the ability for change. It's not the end of how change happens in a democracy, but it is a big part of it. Um, and that was very much that was very much going on in the North. But there was by the, you know, you'd have you were having draft riots in New York because people didn't want to fight to free the slaves. Like, it very easily could have gone the other way, and you could have either had two countries or slavery could have gone on. Yep, probably so would have ended in another war, you know, 10, 20 years later. But something else that we should add this uh, a link to this article in the show notes. Um, but there's something in the Times where a historian at the University of Virginia, excuse me, University of Virginia, um, uh, says that uh, the the tight link between the peace negotiations and the passage of the 13th amendment, like these sort of the, the impetus and like the, the gamesmanship of uh, moving the delegates a little bit up the river, but not quite all the way in. Um, a, a lot of that dramatization was done for the purpose of the movie. And it, it can't quite be proved by the historical record. At least the historical you know, the historian's consensus is not there, but the historian does say that you know, the movie uh, does a pretty compelling, uh, does, a, does a great job of uh, telling a compelling story that this is probably, Probably what happened, and just and and this justified Lincoln's uh, moves in, in various parts of the, of the movie. And I mean, it's not too hard to look at you know various contemporary examples and other examples from modern history of massive civil wars that turned out not to actually solve the problem that they sought out to address. <laughs> it doesn't seem to be that comp- like that rare of a phenomenon. In fact, it seems to be more common than civil wars that actually resolve the conflict or problem that they seek out to address. Right? Or I'm sorry, did all of the workers who revolted against the czar actually end up you know in, in great situations? <laughs> you know, like where they're all of a sudden their oppression and the mechanisms of production was you know not not as great right like um i mean maybe that's an unfair accusation but at the same time it's hard it's hard to look around the world and see a conflict where a civil war actually did kind of fix the thing that it set out to fix um I mean, I guess it did in in the United States to an extent, uh, you know, at a great cost and to, a, you know, wounds that have not been healed, obviously. And I mean, I don't know. You guys who grew up in the South, like one one argument I've had a lot with random strangers on the Internet for no reason is is just how much <laughs> just how much the Civil War damaged parts of the South and, and whether – uh, it, whether truly this was a war in which there was kind of a conqueror's levy that was extracted from the South and, uh, and a degree to which the South is sort of still subordinated as a conquered people. Um, uh, and in similar ways to how they, you know, to the idea that winning the war was something that really, you know, really hurt the South, like that, you know, was really kind of like lorded over the South in a way, in dis- distinctly from, of course, the sort of, you know, racial preferences of the agricultural labor base and all that other stuff. Like, in Independently of whether you think it's good for black people to be subservient to white people, which, of course, I certainly think it is not. Um, but independently of that one concern, is it still an issue where, you know, the part, you know, big parts of the South are living in squalor because the North conquered them? 
Right. Um, well, like the high school field trips you go on in the South are to Civil War battlefields where real people lost. Mm-hmm. Right. Like if you live in Boston, you're going to the, you know, you're going to see revolutionary sites, which, you know, your people were both in the moral right and then won. Um, and so in the South, it's like your people were both, you know, losers and sort of screwed up. Um, and, Dealing with that has been really, really difficult, and yep. and because of the civil rights movement, it continues, right? Like there's, you know, as late as the 1960s, there were federal troops desegregating schools. Like to some extent, it's still occupied territory, and it's not really anymore. But that attitude is very much there. Um, we were talking about other civil wars. One thing that distinguishes this one is that there aren't like Croats and Serbs. There aren't like Hutus and Tutsis. It's a, it's a civil war of Americans versus Americans, and that's actually I think more rare than I I can't think of a lot of other examples of something like that. That there isn't like an ethnic or religious division between yeah. the white people from the north and the white people from the south who fought the civil war against each other. Yeah, I mean it was a civil yeah. war between two forms of capitalism. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, and that's a fairly new thing. And so like you know you can't. At the end of that war, you the Croats, you know, or the, the the losing side can't like hate the winning side for being different, um, and so that it's not like very clear why. You know, I remember just being like a kid and being like, "Well, why why were our people so bad?" And it, it sort of it messes with you a little bit. Like once you start reading about it and you figure it out and you sort of figure it out. But like I had, you know, I had grandparents fight on both sides of it. And I'm definitely like prouder of the ones who fought for the North. Those who don't have people on both sides of it. It's a weird thing to think that your side was both like wrong and you know non-victorious. I think that that mo- that moment, just to sort of touch it briefly back into the the movie uh, before, uh, and I'll then pass it off to Mark, obviously. But you really saw that in Human Target guy's eyes. Right when he was talking to Lincoln about the amendment, you know, when they were in the riverboat, there just there were these long lingering shots of this sort of deep pain that seemed to be in his eyes that really seemed to speak to that experience. Right, this this like you know, and this big speech about how you're destroying our economy and all of our institutions are being obliterated. Right, it was, I mean, you know, portrayed more sympathetically than it might often be, but it, it wasn't that simple. Obviously, right? There's this, you know, the guy seems to know that that things aren't exactly right and that this is the way that things are going to turn out to be, but he. Also also can't help but feel this great sense of loss um and you know desire for vengeance i guess but i don't know so uh, this is what i'm going to weigh in and and how i'm going to weigh in on this it's a bit of a personal anecdote and as we know personal anecdotes are good for uh just telling what happened to one person but uh, i think it's evocative and perfectly scientifically admissible yeah, of course. Um, so there's this place called Stone Mountain in Georgia. Not, I don't think everybody is aware that this place exists, but here's what it is. Um, it is essentially the Confederate Mount Rushmore. Um, on the side of a uh, of a mountain in Georgia, outside of Atlanta, is a, a carving of Jefferson Davis, uh, General Lee, and General Stonewall Jackson. And they're all riding their horses quite majestically. Um, this was completed in 1963. It still exists. It's still a major tourist attraction. Um, as a Korean American family growing up in, in in Georgia at the time, this was a place where we just like went on trips because it was like an interesting place to go. Um, and it's huge and it's still there. I mean, like that to me is like the physical personification of the strength of the memory uh, of the Civil War and its continuing uh, existence in in southern in the southern uh, psyche. Uh, it's not going anywhere. Like, can you? I can't. Like, uh, the part of me is like, well, why don't they just? 
why is that still there? Why don't they just, you know, put dynamite in the thing and blast it off? Because it's just like, it should be this shameful part of the past, you know, where um, this legacy of slavery is, it, it, it was, and, and, and racial segregation as well. Because remember the context of putting this in 1963, right? Like, you know, all these bad things are personified in, in this carving. Let's get rid of it. Let's move on. No, that's not going to happen. Stone Mountain is going to be here for very long time and and with that the sort of the, the lingering pains and, and and memories and romanticization of the confederacy in the civil war remember also that this is a region i mean like this was a region that had a lot of rich people because they owned a lot of other people who did a lot of work um and but since the civil war has been the poorest part of the country and you know to this day is the poorest part of the country and mm-hmm. sort of like it had a real impact um yeah, dude, I saw Gone with the Wind. <laughs> yeah, I have not seen Gone with the Wind. Is it? Because Gone with the Wind, I was thinking during the riverboat scene in particular when they were talking about it that like the events of Gone with the Wind were contemporaneous with the events of the movie Lincoln, and it would be funny to intercut oh, yeah. them as to see like wh- how they were happening at the same time. I guess maybe the March to the Sea was a little earlier. Can Can you fill that in, Josh? Where Where do the events of Gone with the Wind and the events of Lincoln and the events of Abraham? Lincoln, they're Vampire pretty are? much contemporaneous. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, and, I mean, Gone with the Wind has this sort of like very disturbing, at least at least to me, um, you know, real sense of like, isn't it a shame that that I mean, the title is like, you know, it's this glorious uh, antebellum age that is now Gone with the Wind, and isn't it a shame that life isn't like this anymore? I mean, I think that's kind of the gist of it. I don't know. Um, spoilers for Gone with the Wind too. They did go hungry again. <laughs> um, I mean, speaking of uh, you know of, of prior Hollywood treatments of the Civil War, uh, we should certainly talk, or not not just the Civil War, but the legacy of the Civil War. Uh, we should talk about the birth of a nation, right, and its relationship with this movie. Why um, not? Uh, sure, let's talk about birth of a nation. <laughs> yeah, let's. I mean, I mean, what could, what could possibly Scott, the, go wrong, right? Exactly. <laughs> no, nothing. I mean, I, I say that probably because I was reading the A.O. Scott of the New York Times, his review of um, of Lincoln, and saying that you know this movie uh, it stands in direct contrast to things like Gone with the Wind and um, and Birth of a Nation, which are these sort of grand Hollywood um, uh, embodiments of this romanticized Southern version of the Civil War and the Lost Cause thing. And isn't it great that you know Lincoln? <clears throat> this movie is finally is a bit of a you know a Hollywood getting the record straight. I mean, that's a bit of what I was alluding to earlier as well, saying that um, you know I like that this movie confronted the slavery uh, question head on in the Civil War and, and it left no ambiguity about it. Um, so that has to say, like, Birth of a Nation still matters, and it's still in the discourse of movies and and how they deal with the Civil War. Yeah, I mean, one thing I was surprised about with Lincoln was that it didn't really tell the story of Lincoln, right? Like, you would expect in the context of past Civil War stories that it would, like, start with Lincoln on the, in the log cabin in, you know, Kentucky or in Illinois or in Indiana or any of the places where he moved as a kid, that you'd, like, follow his life as a lawyer, that you learn where he got where he got, and then, like, the big fight for the freedom, you know, for the 13th Amendment maybe would be, like, the third act of the movie or, like, the second half of the movie. And it really – because that's, like – I, I mean, I haven't seen Birth of a Nation. I, I guess I should see it, question mark. Uh, you know, for those who are not familiar, it's a it's a silent movie, right? Um, and it's like a movie that really pioneered parallel editing and story, contemporary filmic storytelling techniques or modern filmic storytelling techniques. And is also about how bad black people are and they, how they rape white women and things like that, right? Uh, at least that's, that's my understanding, and right? How, like, um, Ku Klux Klan is. 
and, the, and how great the Ku Klux Klan is for Ku Klux Klan is for for stopping that from happening. Um, so it's problematic, like a lot of things. Like once yeah. you get serious about looking at the past, it starts getting pretty problematic pretty fast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, one of the things about Birth of the Nation that's good to remember is even at the time, it was very controversial and there were numerous protests. So it's not one of these things where like everybody loved it and it was totally, you know, accepted. And only from today's perspective can we see how dicey some of that is. Um, yeah. so, so it was like the um, the Atlas shrugged of its day. No, because because Birth of a Nation is primarily remembered for being a good movie, oh, right. <laughs> not, not necessarily for being a story that people wanted to hear. Right, and that's the point. Whereas Atlas Shrugged is a terrible movie, uh, and it doesn't matter whether one, people want to hear the story about it because it's boring, as about trains and nobody cares. And Unstoppable really sort of cornered the market and said all that needed to be said about trains. Isn't it 2000. about like metallurgy? Isn't it about like basically the development of adamantium? <laughs> oh, Atlas Shrugged. Yeah, I thought I thought that some of it like like there were like long passages about like various alloys. Yeah, no, it's about I think I believe, although I have not seen the movie myself, I did read a Wikipedia article. I haven't read the book either. I read the first ten pages and I wanted to kill myself, so I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so uh, you could be the judge of whether that's correlation or causation. Um, but uh, but no, the uh, I believe that it's about someone wanting to make improvements to a railway system and then running into institutional barriers about making improvements to that railway system uh, and having to do with unions and other sorts of like haranguings and bureaucrats and whatnot and government approvals and things like that. And then thus like that is where it then jumps off to its whole kind of like, well, wouldn't it be awesome if all the rich people got a super powerful rich com- rich person compound? thing and everyone else had to be sad because they were gone and, and didn't appreciate them when they were around and all the other nonsense it's like cry 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 um but yeah so yeah i believe that it's about trains and about adamantium sort of <laughs> so there you go they're, yeah they're gonna make the uh they're gonna they're gonna make the trans uh, the, the transcontinental railroad out of wolverine's bones that's the whole plan they're just going to like string them out from one side of the country to the other. Yeah. It's called a Logan Shrugged. It comes out next summer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, I mean, like, about the, the movie, I mean, I guess for the movie as a movie, I mean, what, how did you guys think of it, you know, technically in terms of its execution, kind of independently of its uh, historical uh, historical, uh, you know, messages or kind of the, the, is the issues that it happens to choose to address? If there was, like, an Academy Award for, like, Best Achievement in Facial Hair, it would would be up there, right? It would be nominated. I mean, it's competing pretty hardcore with The Hobbit on both Best Facial Hair (laughs) and Best Bilbo, right? Like, (laughs) it has Fattest Bilbo locked up, uh, which is pretty awesome. Um, Beating out Ian Holm from The the Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings. Uh, (laughs) What are the odds that there was a historical Bilbo that would have been... Featured like you know this this particular release season, yeah, 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 and he had to go on an unlikely journey, an unexpected journey, right? Where he had to meet all these people of power and get involved in a great fight, right? And like he's kind of silly and kind of flip, you know, he's he's a little bit rough around the edges, yeah. but you know, like, I, I literally just googled Bilbo, and the the first link is Bilbo Baggins, and the second link is Theodore Bilbo, and the third <laughs> is Leonard Nimoy's Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, which I recommend you all watch if you haven't seen it. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Now, that is a climax, right? Where you like start with the lowest and ascend toward the highest. It's not an anticlimax, um, where you you sort of go up and then you go back down. No, I think that Leonard Nimoy is the mountaintop on that one. 
I mean, did you speaking, guys speaking of civil rights? Was that a Martin Luther King reference there, Pete? No, uh, the mountain. Yeah, sure. Why not? Let's, Let's go with that. Call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting Martin Luther King reference that he had a dream, right? That like uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, had a dream. <laughs> like I think that they actually point at it early in the movie, and like isn't like the the magical black person kind of nod, and it's like, oh, he had a did he have a dream? Oh, he's telling the dream uh, to Mary Todd. Yeah, but then but then um, the the partner from Time Cop is going in to the to the room, right, and asks whether he told you if he had a dream, right? Um, I thought that there was a little. That's who that is, right? Yeah. It's the partner from. I mean, don't they only? It's, it's like you have a special <laughs> version of IMDb that's like only updated through 1990. This is one of the best that guy from that thing movies like ever. It was Gale from Breaking Bad. It was Shane from The Shield, right? The partner from Time Cop, right? Is hanging out with you know like the guy from There Will Be Blood and Last Mohicans. Oh, uh, that's not fair to call him that. Well, but like definitely the guy from that. Man. Right, the totally partner weird. from uh, Deadwood was one of the uh, lobbyists. The guy who spanked Maggie Gyllenhaal that one time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's yeah. funny. It's like if Daniel Day Lewis were not such a such a singular presence, who's who's really like you know sucking all the the acting oxygen out of the room. It has a great ensemble cast. There there are great actors all the way down through the small roles. Oh yeah, I mean the the scenes including, in Congress are fantastic, including like, boyfriend. Sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Matt. No, no, no. Including boyfriend from Girls as the telegraph operator. In yes, the, boyfriend in the... from Girls was in this. Yes, right. <laughs> um, yeah. I, they should I start giving Academy Awards this way. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I mean, for for F's sake, like Lane from Mad Men was in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. As this is grand for some reason, doing a doing a credible sort of kind of American accent. Yeah, yeah, he was forcing it a little bit, but I think it's it was probably marriage-ish. kind of period inappropriate, right? Like, yeah, yeah. they were going for a drunk mid nineteenth mid nineteenth century Ohio. Like, yeah, sure, that's probably what that sounded like. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Sally Field, I, I'm not really familiar with a lot of her work, but she's won um, she's won lady, two Academy Awards for best Wait, oh, it's sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, like she she won two Academy Awards for best actress uh, like 20 years ago, and so you know this shouldn't surprise anyone that she can act. But anyone oh, wow. who I, I, fantastic say anyone that. Who is of her generation. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> anyone who has seen no, a, I, I totally. A little movie called Soap Dish uh, should know a thing or two about <laughs> Sally Field's prowess as an actress. Yeah, this is she's like the same character in those two movies. <laughs> <laughs> Mary Todd Lincoln, like the aged soap star, is sort of losing it. Um, and also, the character in Steel Magnolias is like pretty much the same character, at least for the third act of Steel Magnolias, right? Um, spoilers for Steel Magnolias. Sorry, I, I don't want to say more than that because it's very sad and she gets very upset. Sally feels dead the whole time. Exactly. Exactly. She's assassinated in a theater because of her bold stance against slavery, which is not looked kindly upon in uh, in Georgia or Louisiana, which is where Steel Magnolias takes place. If you saw, I, mean, I found her character, she was so good in the role that like I hated the character so much that it's hard for me to think positively about her acting in the movie. Well, how did you? Like, you mean you hated the character, sort of on surface level, or you hated the portrayal of the character? No, 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 like, no. I think the portrayal was amazing, but you just kind of hate Mary Todd. Like you're like, get out of his way, lady. Well, I mean, that's like, the general historical consensus on Mary Todd Lincoln, right? Right. No, it's exactly right. I, no, I think she nailed it as, but like, 
it's hard for me to think about her in a positive way because the character was so annoying. Yeah. She even has this great sort of almost breaking the fourth wall speech at the end where she's like, man, everyone watching this movie is going to hate me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. In the buggy. That's exactly what that speech yeah. is. And like, and then Dale Day-Lewis is like, well, you know, yeah. It's called Lincoln. <laughs> Not Todd. <laughs> Get over it, lady. Um, this hey. was... Go ahead. So before we wrap up this this podcast, um, I want to uh, address what I alluded to at the very beginning of this, um, uh, the, the the reference to Tony Kushner and uh, and and gay politics. Um, and, and hear me out on on this theory. It's not actually not much of a stretch, but here we go. Um, like, why this movie now? Right. There's a variety of reasons you could point to. One being that you know enough time has passed since Doris Kearns Goodwin Doris Kern Goodwin's book. A team of rivals has been in the in in the zeitgeist, you know, so that it's you know the time for you know Lincoln movie. Um, you can point to also the, what the 150th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War, um, having recently passed. Um, all these things, you know, link, you know Lincoln and Civil War, they're out there. Um, but what occurred to me it was like, you know, what if this is like, you know, the, the, the agenda behind this is saying like, and this is the way uh, for Tony Kushner and Spielberg to say like. Like, take a look at this. Look at this awesome moment where a president stood up and, like, got this amendment passed that uh, that advanced civil rights. Shouldn't we do this for gay marriage as well? I mean, my gut is to say it has more to do with the, with our black president from Illinois um, being, like, the historical moment for it than specifically gay stuff. But, um, right, because yeah, there's always, I mean, there's always a – there's always an ideological struggle, right? Like, every age, you know, that succeeding generations will look back at us and our barbarism at something that we did. You know what I mean? We, we right-thinking progressives all on this, uh, you know, august panel on this podcast. Um, and they will have, you know, when they make their Lincoln movie starring – uh, I don't know. Starring the John, kid- Jonathan Taylor Thomas <laughs> yeah, reascended. I was about to say the kid from Two and a Half Men or something. <laughs> oh, no, he'd be right wing now. He's gone right wing hardcore. Right? Yeah. He wouldn't want to be somebody so liberal. I don't think he'll be in the Reagan movie. Yeah, <laughs> but he won't watch it. He'll tell you not to watch it because it's trashy. <laughs> the Reagan movie, right? When they make Reagan. You know what I mean? About like the speech where he says, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, come to this wall. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. You know, don't joke about it. You know that somebody the only reason they haven't made it is they Republicans don't have a good enough screenwriter yet, but they're working on it. They'll figure it out. <laughs> once, they they brainwash, the once they brainwash Sorkin, it'll be fine. Um, <laughs> it'll be about like the, the airline strike and how he broke the back of the unions um, in the yeah. heroic moment of airline safety. Uh, <laughs> Right. The, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. Uh, honestly, you got to say that, like, the Republicans have had some pretty good speechwriters, right, in their time. Like, you know, William Sapphire, no slouch he. Uh, yeah, they have the actors, too. Kevin Sorbo, uh, <laughs> Bruce Willis. Kirk, uh, yeah, sure. Chuck Norris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, I like the idea, and I think, I mean, I hope that it sort of serves that function um but the thing we were talking about earlier about how like compromise is seen as a virtue in this movie to me that's the reaction to sort of the modern day mm-hmm. where compromise is you know we're starting to see like republican congress people pulling away from their like grover norquist no tax pledge like it seems like this year sort of compromise is in vogue and like starting to come back into popularity um and not being seen as just a sign of weakness which to my mind, is a really positive step forward for the country, and I think 
I think having it celebrated and sort of shown to people um, that even Lincoln was willing to sort of make the compromises to improve things for people. Like it was a hopeful movie in that way for me. And one that I sort of kind of think Congress should be forced to see in a sort of uh, clockwork orange fashion over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I, I wanted to ask you guys a question about this movie as a, as a polemic. Right. And it struck me that the, the, the polemic had to do with with moderation or something like holding your own opinions in in reserve um you know that a greater good that a greater good can be accomplished by sort of not striving for all the all that you feel is good and sort of what conceding that someone else someone else may have a point but is that i mean i don't know is that 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 seems kind of m- m- perhaps morally morally lazy to me that is to say when when tommy lee jones says you know i do not hold with equality in all things only in equality before the law um right like is that is that a moment of great success or sort of great great mm. failure from a from a certain point of view i mean the the movie seems to to have it both ways uh which which may be the best way to do it by sort of making it a moment of triumph and like this great sort of uh, outpouring of applause among the Republicans on the, f- on the floor of the house. And, and yet like Mrs. Keckley, that, be- that beacon of wise blackness, right? Like has to like take a moment out in the hall um, because she uh, is so disappointed um, by what she's hearing and is so kind of demoralized by it. Well, I mean, if you look at it, like the healthcare debate, right? There was sort of this, like the rabid faction calling for, Single payer healthcare, and then there are a whole lot of people saying stay away from it. And in order to get it done, you had to get the single payer folks to compromise with the sort of mixed bag that we have now, folks. It, and you know they weren't happy about it. Um, I know a lot of people who worked on that campaign who you know are still mad that we don't have single payer. But like in order to get to, in order to move the ball forward, they had to compromise. And like it's a win. It's not a it's not a movie ending feel good entirely because everything's great win, but it's still a win and people's lives are still better off. And so like, I don't know. I saw it. I saw his walk home and like his, the scene with his wife, um, which was a nice reveal. If a little, I thought a little heavy handed, but, but like was a very valedictory thing. Like he was happy. He went to bed happy knowing that the world was better for what he'd done that day. Yeah, he did. Cause <laughs> Lieutenant Van Buren from, uh, from law and order was <laughs> well, the, the, the other side of the coin to, I think, because we've talked a lot about how the movie is in favor of compromise and negotiation, but the other side of the coin is think about the speech that Lincoln gives about the, or the, the speech, the speech to us, but the sort of diatribe he goes on about the Emancipation Proclamation and the sort of legal opinions around the Emancipation Proclamation. And there is a sense that Lincoln himself is somewhat of a true believer. Right. And like he's accused of being insufficiently zealous in pursuit of the revolution, as it were. Right. Um, in terms of, you know, black rights and freedom from slavery. But there's a strong sense that Lincoln feels personally really strongly about stopping slavery uh, and that he that this is a thing he's unwilling to compromise on. And in fact, so many of these compromises come in the pursuit of a big compromise that he's unwilling to make. Right, and if you think about it that way, is that he is handed a huge opportunity to compromise for the duration of the movie that has real consequences when he doesn't take it. I mean, he there's that scene, that wordless scene where he rides through the battlefield of all the people who died because he waited an extra couple weeks to end the war, right? And he could have spared all their lives. I think that's what that scene is about, where he's riding through right, the battlefield. Right. 
it's all totally about these. I am personally responsible for all these people being dead because I had the chance to end the war and I chose not to because I want to stop slavery. Um, so it's it's a little bit too simple to say just that the movie is pro compromise. It's not. I think it's against uh, being adamantly uh, like the adamant refusal to compromise in all circumstances. But it's very much in favor of having really strong beliefs and having really strong things that you're trying to accomplish, really strong goals, and being really driven in pursuit of those goals, and and having real backbone when it comes to standing up for what you believe in. I mean, honestly, it doesn't really offer us a ton of really hard guidance because it sort of says make the smart compromises, not the stupid ones, right? Not like the bad ones, which are going to be different, you know, given who you are and what the age is and what the questions are that are at stake right sure, like, that's i mean but that is i mean that's the message of everything always isn't it that like you know things are good if done well you know <laughs> not necessarily there's a whole bunch of german plays that are like things are always bad. <laughs> everything is always bad <laughs> everything is uh they're coming for you johnson lebowski yes. <laughs> um, so okay to end to end the podcast i mean let's talk about the ending uh, the ending of the the film a little bit right like and the 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 there are a couple of endings in this movie aren 't there right like Lincoln walking down the hallway um, the uh the scene uh, in the theater where his son hears that his dad has been shot um him on the bed, and then the ki- the flickering candle and then the second second inaugural and i mean i the second inaugural has to be in there because that 's the other greatest hit you can 't make an album without putting the second inaugural on it no, but you do it over the closing credits, not over a candle fade yeah dude Spielberg should have learned that lesson at in St private Ryan. You don't ruin a perfectly good movie with this like saccharine little coda that didn't need to be there. We got the point uh, without without the candle in the wind thing. And, yeah. <laughs> but one ending too many. Goodbye. You should have boarded Abraham. the gray ships with Bilbo. Bilbo got to get on the gray ships because he was a ring bearer, right? <laughs> and so in like the fifth ending of Lincoln, it should have shown Bilbo and Gandalf. That's true. <laughs> I really wanted like after the end credits, there's like a scene where like Dale Day Lewis is at his desk. And like Keanu Reeves just comes out of a phone book and just grabs it. Just grabs him and takes him. That's yeah. the end. I definitely read somewhere on the internet that it's possible, difficult but possible, to reconcile the two movies. <laughs> <laughs> How is it? Okay, I really want to hear this. <laughs> oh, I didn't hear details. It was just posited. It was sort of like Fermat's uh, last theorem or whatever it is, where it's like, oh, there's a really elegant proof to this. But uh, am I remember the guy's name? Probably not. Yeah, unfortunately, um, yeah, unfortunately, this blog comment is you know too narrow to contain the uh, <laughs> exactly the this tweet. This. It was a tweet. It's like I. I don't have more than 140 characters to explain, but you get the picture. Well, the um, yeah, the, yeah. the retconning of Lincoln with the uh, you know J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, you know universe is um, is left as an exercise to the reader. Let's say, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know anything else about the ending other than it was a little schmaltzy, and uh, I mean, very schmaltzy, and. Uh, you know, I don't know, there were maybe too many endings. Well, I mean, I will say one thing, which is that throughout the movie, it is brought up constantly how beloved by the people Lincoln is. But, of course, one of the great sort of emotional points of the movie is that this is a belovedness that Lincoln himself is not a, a very active part of Lincoln's life. Lincoln is actually fairly lonely 
and pretty sad a lot of the time. Uh, he doesn't really have the opportunity to have his own emotional needs met by the love of these multitudes that love him so much, supposedly. Right. And so you don't really get to see that aspect of his life um, throughout the movie. And uh, and then sort of so then when they say, you know, he belongs to the ages, you know, the part that belongs to the ages. And that's what they say when he dies is the part that well they say he is no more and that he belongs to the ages the part that belongs to the ages is the beloved part that everybody sees right and that's when we see the inaugural another notable thing about the inaugural is everyone's wearing the stovepipe hats as they're watching him speak right you see this huge throng of people who are all imitating him right and all who sort of want to be him and he's giving this big speech where he's using a lot of different kinds of terminology than he uses in private conversations throughout the course of the movie and you see the Lincoln that everybody loves and the Lincoln that is going to be part of the ages that, but the Lincoln as he experienced himself and as, the, as we were supposed to see through the eyes of the, the screenwriter and the camera in this movie, that Lincoln that solitary Lincoln, that Lincoln is no more, right? Lincoln right. the man and dies, Lincoln the myth. Pete, I don't I don't, I don't know if this may have been just me, but I, I actually was contrasting that speech at the very end where the, one of the very first things that happened in the movie is he gives this very underwhelming speech at the raising of a flag yeah. in front of – I don't know what that was, like a post office or something. But it's yeah, sort of yeah, purposely yeah. – it's like it's one of the pointless ceremonies that a president has to do, and he's phoning it in, and everyone's – and it's like everyone has this like apologetic laugh at like how sad the moment is. Yeah, so yeah. It, is, it is sort of like it, it's almost like after he dies, you have this vision of his second inauguration. And maybe it's like it's not the way that it actually happened, but it's like already this myth that that sprung to life yeah. at the moment of his death. Yeah. I mean, the fact that Lincoln gives boring speeches is referenced more than once. Right. When he gives the yeah. speech, like, why'd you put that in such a terrible speech? Right. And he's like, it was, you know, it wasn't a good speech. It was well, a bad yeah. speech. I mean, actually. Going back to what Matt was saying earlier about the, you know, what, what's the point of all this compromise? Maybe one of the points of the movie is that much can be forgiven if you win. <laughs> you know, and that, and that, like, if you win, that's what people remember. I'm not sure if it's if you win. I mean, certainly that's the mechanism by which it happens. But given the overall sentimentality of the movie, I suspect that being right it is sort of also important uh, when you win. Right. But that's I mean, maybe just in terms of the vocabulary of the movie, people talk a lot about um, how it is dehumanizing to be around slavery. Right. This effect that it has in your observation, the pallor that passes over his eyes when he sees the 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 ship, the barge carrying the slaves when he's a child. He talks about it. I think is mentioned a couple more times. It has this awful dehumanizing effect. Um, I feel like. If they, if you win, but you're kind of debasing yourself by winning, you don't get the same candlelight, you know, farewell. Perhaps, perhaps it's kind of like there's a there's a sense in which the shroud is lifted. Uh, I suppose I don't know. Well, have perhaps. we lifted have we lifted the shroud from your eyes about the film Lincoln <laughs> or about Abraham Lincoln, uh, the man, or about the the history of the American Civil War? Um, we had a great conversation last week in the the comments on the show notes uh, about irony. Um, many of you were kind enough to suggest that uh, the last episode, the one about irony, would be a good starter episode uh, to give to people um, about uh, about the overthinking podcast. If you wanted to turn your friends on to the Overthinking Podcast. So thank you for doing that. I hope you're, you know, I don't know, emailing it out to people and saying, hey, here's a great podcast for you. Because we're, we, we kind of don't know how to, 
get this podcast to, uh, in the ears of more people. Um, but uh, so uh, I, I think we're going to have as good a um, as good a, uh, a conversation on this um, on this episode, uh, perhaps because the the uh, of the the kind of national weight of the issues in play. So if you want to join that conversation, you can leave a comment on the show notes for this episode. You can also uh, send some listener feedback by emailing podcast at overthinking it.com or calling two zero three two eight five six four zero one. That's two Oh three two eight five six four zero one call or text. We will be uh, back next week, but until then you can find us. I, (laughs) We are we are the website of overthinking, clothed in immense overthinking, uh, at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. I free your Negroes. Uh. <laughs> Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And party on, dude! <laughs> what, an entire Lincoln podcast without an Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter joke? Yeah. Look, they made a whole movie of that ridiculous joke. They don't need us to help them. It's done. It's yeah, over. True. I don't know. But yeah, um, how about drive a stake in it? And I don't even know. How do you make a joke about Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter? How do you even do it? It's it's jerk proof. You know, it's funny. We got the whole podcast without mentioning Joseph Gordon Levitt either. Like, no, no Dark Knight jokes, looper jokes, nothing. Now you well, you, you mean the kid with the long hair from Third Rock from the Sun, that guy? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>